Welcome to the podcast for Gateway Baptist Church. You're listening to a message from our Ormo campus. Find us at gatewaybaptist.com.au if you'd like to connect with us as we seek to change lives by following Jesus in our community, our nation, and our world. We're not just sitting in the round today because we thought it was a good idea, although it was it nice just to do something different, just a little bit different. Some of you are going, I hate the fact that other people watch me. I've never closed my eyes in worship as much as I did today. Hey? But I, the reason we're doing this is, one, we're forced outside, let's do something different, but two, we're in the middle of our Better Story series. So we've been talking for the last four weeks about a better story, and we've been looking at some of the narratives of our culture, and we've been looking at the narrative of Scripture, and we've been comparing them, and saying, actually, the life that we're invited into with Jesus is the invitation into a better story. Today's the middle week of the series because today we get to the central message of the series and the central message of the entire biblical narrative as we land in the story of Jesus. And essentially, if you forget everything else that I'm going to say today and someone says, what did you talk about in church? Just tell them that the message was how Jesus is the center of our faith. Jesus is the center. It's the reason we put a cross here because the cross has become the symbol of the Christian faith. And the cross and Jesus dying on the cross has become uh, eternally shaping for all of us. So Jesus and and the message of the cross is central to our faith. But what's the better story all about? See, we live in a culture that is full of narratives. Narratives and stories that invade our world and invite us to partake in them. Invite us to make them our stories. See, ultimately, the stories of our culture are ones that promise us a future that is different from our current or from our past. In some ways, they're salvation or redemption stories because they say to us, the story you're living right now is not the story that you're going to live in the future. See, because everyone looks at the now and then projects into the not yet or the one that is to come. See, ultimately, the stories of our culture promise us a future that's different from our past. They promise to save us from a life of mediocrity or a life without purpose. They promise a life of happiness and contentment, a life of pleasure, a life of freedom, or a life where we can determine our future. And many of us have fallen for their promises. We've sold wholeheartedly into the stories of culture that promise a better future. And we've given everything to those stories. We've pursued success and power and wealth and prosperity and pleasure and freedom. Yet as we've pursued these stories, we've found them to be empty. And some of you here today, if you reflect on your life, you realize that you've pursued some narratives that when you got to the finish line or you got to the ultimate place that you thought you had to get to, you arrived there and you asked the question, is that all there was? Surely there's something better. Surely there's something more. Surely there's something that has greater meaning or purpose than where I've arrived to. Many of us have found the stories of our culture empty because we've arrived at their destination and yet we're still empty. We're still longing for more. We're still discontent. We still found, like, we haven't found what we're looking for. You know, if you ask a lot of kids what they want to be, depending on their age, depends on the answer that you get. But at some point, a lot of kids will tell you that they want to be rich, they want to be famous, and they want to represent Australia in sport somewhere. Maybe that's just my family. I did have four boys before we had our daughter, Sarah, 
But that's been the narrative in a lot of uh, the stories of my kids as they've grown up, rich, famous, and play sport for Australia. See, these are some of the narratives that we buy ourselves into or that, that we sell our lives for. The pursuit of these things, wealth, fame, success, recognition. You know, there was research conducted a few years ago that, that, that looked at income and wealth and the sense of well-being. And what they found was this. They found that there is, there is, an average, there is a household income that equates to about the average household income in Australia. It's, it's actually the research found that the, the point is actually a little bit under what is the average household income in Australia. They found there's a particular point where when you arrive at it, you have enough to do life well. But then anything beyond it is the thing that we all pursue, but is the thing that actually starts to diminish our experience of the goodness of life. Listen to what the research found. They found that those that had more income than this particular average figure tended to be associated with reduced life satisfaction and a lower level of well-being. Well, what's that mean? That people that spend their whole life pursuing more wealth report that as they get more wealth, they're less satisfied and more discontent than when they had less. Isn't that crazy? Because some of us have sold our souls to the pursuit of more. Yet, yet narrative and research says that you know, we don't want to live in poverty, but there's a point where we have enough, and beyond that point of enough where we start pursuing more, we actually find ourselves less content and less free and more enslaved to the pursuit of more that we find ourselves less happy. The research goes on to say this, and this is even more sobering. The quote will come up. It's not just adults who are impacted by this phenomenon. Children who come from affluent families are more likely to suffer from depression, anxiety, and substance abuse than those who come from less affluent families. I don't know about you, but we live in a culture that tells you that more is better. But the research tells us that the more we have, sometimes the less content we become. And the author that was writing the article around this particular study said, we've equated it down to a few things. More money equals more want. But what's that mean? The more you have, the more you want. And the more you get, the more you're discontent with what you get and you want the next thing. In other words, you don't like the car you've got, you want a better car, but the minute you get the better car, you start noticing everybody that's got a car that's better than the one that you just bought. And so your heart doesn't live in the moment of what you've got. You start craving the thing that you haven't got yet. And so this cycle begins where we're never content with what we have and we always want more. And for some of us, our porn magazines or real estate magazines and car magazines, and you know, because they're the things that our heart craves after the next thing that we don't have. Yet some of us sell our entire life into the pursuit of more because we've told ourselves that happiness, freedom, contentment, wholeness exists at the end of the rainbow where I have enough money that I don't have to worry about money anymore. But everybody that gets to the point of having enough money where they think they don't have to worry about money anymore actually finds out they keep worrying about money. Because the, the author said it's not just more money equals more wants. They've also said more money equals more isolation because we start to protect that which we've got and we start to look at everybody else with a sense of suspicion. Are they just after me for what I've got? But more money doesn't just mean more isolation. More money also means more work. 
The more you got, the more you got to work for it. The more you've got to... Uh, the, the, one of the wisdom writers in the scripture says that I have a lot and I lie awake at night thinking about it. So overwhelmed is my mind with that which I have. Now, before you start writing your email and throwing stones at me, I'm not here to suggest that having stuff or, 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 or that wealth is evil in itself. The Bible never says that wealth is evil. The Bible says that the root of all evil is the love of money. Mon- not money itself. There's a point where we all need to care for our families and put shelter over our heads and live life that is comfortable. I understand that. The point that I'm trying to make is if we sell ourselves to a story that says the more I have, when I get to the end of that, I'm going to be content and happy and free and life is going to arrive at its greatest moment. Everybody that's walked that journey says you never arrive at the moment where you feel like you've got enough. It's an empty story if that's the only story you choose to pursue. So if pursuing wealth isn't the place that we find satisfaction, what about fame and celebrity? We live in a culture obsessed with fame and celebrity. Every kid wants to start an Instagram account and get more followers to see if they can become an influencer. The only thing they seem to influence is fashion, and the fashion is atrocious, (laughs) right? Coming from a bloke that dresses like he grew up in the country. If you've been doing the Alpha course with us, there's a great quote from the actor Jim Carrey that uh, comes up in week one of the Alpha teaching, and I think it's worthwhile using it today. Jim Carrey says this, I think everybody should get rich and famous, and do everything they ever dreamed of so they can see that it's not the answer. We all say it's easy for Jim Carrey to say that, right? Because he is rich and famous and got everything he's ever dreamed of, so why don't you just give me the chance to see if that works for me? But once again, if we sell our soul to the narrative that fame and fortune and renown, celebrity is going to make us happy, we've missed the boat as well. As I said, the dream of every one of my boys so far has to be a sporting superstar. I mean, come on, a lot of us sitting here grew up with that dream. Some of us are still living it vicariously through our children because I've seen you on the sidelines of your kids' football games and your kid's not as good as you think he is. I'm, I'm joking. But you all know it's true. They're on the sideline of every field in Australia. They're playing like sixth division Bean Lee League and the parents acting like that, you know, the AFL Premiership Cup is up for grand. Like we all live in this space of feeling like the greatest pursuit in life is the pursuit of success and recognition. I mean, when I think about it, I wanted to play cricket for Australia growing up. I mean, it looks like the greatest life. You get paid exorbitant amounts of money to do the very thing you love doing, which is essentially to play a game. You get a whole bunch of free, cool clothing to go with it, to get your face on the Weetbix packet and be known by everybody. Like, what a great life. It's why every young person dreams of being a sporting success. There was a study done by the Australian Institute of Sport a few years ago that found that athletes were significantly more likely to report high to very high psychological distress compared to general community norms. For those that care about statistics, 17.15% versus 9.5%. And more likely to report symptoms of depression and anxiety at a level that would warrant professional health care. Australian gold medal award winning diver, Olympic champion Matthew Mitchum said this, after a while the self-esteem stuff started to kick back in again and I started to believe that nobody actually liked me. They just liked the medal and I was just a coat rack for the medal. 
and that I had no value as a person. That's when I had a relapse of my drug addiction. In other words, what he's saying is all the things that I thought would bring me ultimate happiness, I got there. I reached the pinnacle. I got to the top. I wore the gold medal for Australia, which in the sporting field has got to be the pinnacle, doesn't it? And he said, I got there and I started to become suspicious of everyone around me. I thought they don't like me as a person. They just like what's hanging around my neck. And actually, the stats are a whole lot scarier and the studies aren't as clear. They're just anecdotes. But if you talk to retired sports people, as they walk out of their industry, they get forgotten very quickly and they realise that people love them for what they did and they're now forgotten and they don't have the routine that they've known since they were a kid and the fame and the success and the autograph hunters and all those things have diminished away and many, many retired athletes talk about the emptiness and the depression and the hole that they've found themselves in. Why am I telling you all this? What a depressing message to be outdoors on a great day. Because I'm getting to a note of hope. I'm telling you this, and I know we've covered some of this ground in the last couple of weeks, but some of us have sold our soul to the story that says, if I become rich, famous, if I succeed in my chosen field, if I scale the heights, if I achieve what nobody else has achieved, I'm going to be happy. I'm going to find life's greatest goal, meaning, fulfillment, and purpose. And we get there, and we find that it's not what it's stacked up to be, that the promise is actually empty. So if that's all there is to life, what should we do? Is that the best that life has to offer? What if there is actually a better story? You see, this problem isn't new. People just haven't found a way to solve it yet. See, none of the things that I've mentioned, and I need to say this very clearly, wealth, success, sporting achievement, fame, none of those things are bad in themselves. Some of us here today are going to find ourselves in those places and we're not even really going to pursue it. Some of us are going to find ourselves with significant wealth or significant renown or we're going to find ourselves as, you know, finding great success in our chosen field. And that's okay. None of those things are bad in themselves. The problem comes when they become the story we embrace as the ultimate way to find happiness, fulfillment and freedom. Because history shows when you scale the highest height, there's something inside that doesn't feel like it's arrived. This is not a new quest. An ancient uh, book in the Bible, the book of Ecclesiastes, and the writer is a man of great wealth, great fame, great renown, great success, and he writes this. I undertook great projects. I built houses for myself and I planted vineyards. I made gardens and parks and planted all kinds of fruit trees in them. I made reservoirs to water groves of flourishing trees. I bought male and female slaves and had other slaves who were born in my house. Just if you're unfamiliar with the scriptures, this was written thousands of years ago in a culture where slavery was very much part of what was happening in the community. So please don't get stuck on that. I also owed more, owned more herds and flocks than anyone in Jerusalem before me. I amassed silver and gold for myself and the treasure of kings and provinces. I acquired male and female singers. I mean, isn't that the ultimate goal of life? Bought a new car, did an extension, employed a couple of singers. <laughs> and a harem as well, the delights of a man's heart. I became greater by far than anyone in Jerusalem before me. Let's pause there for a second. In, in other words, this guy says, I did everything, everything that most people dream of. 
I spared no wealth. I spared no resource. I built great projects. I was successful. Everybody knew about me. I had hundreds of people working for me. Isn't this as good as it gets? And then he goes on to say this. In all this, my wisdom stayed with me. I denied myself nothing my eyes desired. I refused my heart no pleasure, but my heart took delight in all my labor, and this was the reward for all my toil. Yet when I surveyed all that my hands had done and what I toiled to achieve, everything was meaningless. A chasing after the wind. I love that line, chasing after the wind. Nothing was gained under the sun. I mean, that that sounds rather depressive, doesn't it? But he just says thousands of years ago, the thing that people still sign their life away to today. I just pursued everything that I ever dreamed of. And when I arrived, everything was meaningless. It was like chasing the wind. You wonder what that means? Just Sunday afternoon activity, go and try and chase the wind. That's what he says. It's just like, there's no direction. There's no sense. There's no way to achieve it. You just never arrive. You just chase the wind and it's a pointless activity. I actually love to see on some of the community forums on Facebook this afternoon that weird people were running around chasing wind. So if you could do that for me, that'd be awesome. He says it's meaningless. There's there's nothing to it. I mean, this is is a, a highly successful, wealthy man thousands of years ago writes this. Yet people haven't got any more creative here in the world that we've say we've arrived, haven't we? Like the Industrial Revolution got us to the point where we know stuff and science has explained everything. and we, we all understand life and how it's formed. I mean, this was a primitive understanding of the world, yet we've still come to the place where we're pursuing exactly the same things and coming to exactly the same conclusions. Maybe it's time to pursue a different story. Some of us haven't just gone after the secular narratives of wealth, fame, culture, success. Some of us have actually tried to save ourselves through religion. See, some of us have gone for a different path. We've gone, we know that stuff is meaningless. It doesn't come to everywhere. Let's try a different path. So we've found religion to try to become the thing that saves us, that gives us a hope and a meaning and a fulfillment. But it really depends on what narrative and what religious narrative you bought into. Because so many religious narratives, and even some that we've been presented in the Christian faith, suggest that meaning, freedom, fulfillment, and wholeness come from being a good person. And so we haven't pursued wealth, but we've pursued goodness. Which we say, if we, if we live life in such a way that we're good enough, then we're going to be okay. Then God's going to accept us. So we've actually dedicated our whole life to being a good person. And some of us have convinced everybody else that we're really awesome and really good people. But deep down inside, we still feel like it's a failed narrative. Because we know deep in our heart that we don't live up to our own standards of goodness, let alone the standards of goodness that we think God would care about. And so some of us just beat ourselves up and try harder and try harder and try harder. You see, we we haven't sought salvation in wealth or success or fame. We've sought salvation through being good. Because if I'm good enough, God's going to like me, right? And if God likes me, well, maybe when all this life is over, he'll think I'm okay. And so we have a whole culture that thinks God is real. There's, there's more people in our culture that think God is real than don't, right? So we, we say we're in a secular culture. That is true. But there's more people in Australia that believe in a God than that don't believe in a God. But most think that the way you get in God's good books is being good. 
But you know in your heart of hearts that you're in trouble. Because I can introduce you to people that are better than you are. There's something in this church. If you think you're really good, come and tell me that. And let me go and introduce you to people that have you know, given away most of what they own to the poor, that have given their life to serve on the mission field, that, that have looked after kids. And I'll find people that are probably gooder than you are. So if your salvation, that's a good word, isn't it? Any English teachers here? Gooder. Kids, write that in your English assignment this week, right? And see how you go. <laughs> Don't do that. Don't do that. Don't do that. <laughs> well, school's ringing me. But we actually think there's people that are, that are, are you know, if, if the way to find faith with God is to be good. If our salvation narrative says that it's about me being good and ticking all the right boxes and learning all the right rhythms and all the right language and convincing everyone else at Gateway Ormo and whatever local church I'm a part of that I've got it all together, we've missed the mark. You know what the, the, the mark that we've missed in both that story and in the other story that I've already shared this morning is the center of all of those stories is you. The center of every single one of those stories is you. Because to find success or fulfillment or meaning in all of those things, it all depends on you. Are you good enough? Are you smart enough? Are you risky? Are you willing to take enough risks to get where you want to go? Are you fast enough? Are you articulate enough? Are you well enough educated? It's all about are you. It's all about you. You are the center of all of the narratives that I've shared this morning. They all depend on you and their success depends on you. The problem is all of these stories only work when you're in control. But what happens when you're not? Because many have chased their whole life to pursue these stories and come up short. Just for every gold medal success winning story there is, there's a story of heartbreak of an athlete that gave their entire life and broke down physically at the last hurdle. For every story of success in wealth and business, there's a story of bankruptcy. For every story of people that felt they made it to the top of the chain, they find somebody that trumped them and did even better. You see, some of us lose control of the story because of our health. All the great plans that we had for our life fell apart because our bodies fell apart before we'd hoped they would. Some of us lost control of our story because there were forces outside of us, market forces that meant that everything we had went to nothing. There were political forces. We, we live in what they call the lucky country. And, and we've all grown up in a generation that hasn't known hardship and war and destruction. Our kids have grown up in incredible prosperity. But just got to go to a different postcode on our planet to find kids that have grown up where they haven't known half their family because of civil war and unrest and famine and poverty. You see, sometimes just the geography of where we live determines the story that we can write. Some of us were going really well. Our story was riding control and then somebody did something to pull it all down. And somebody, we didn't muck it up. Somebody else mucked it up for us. One of our kids did something stupid or someone that we worked with went and did something deceitful and suddenly the great mountain that we were climbing all came tumbling down and we found out that we weren't in control anymore. Some of us have given our whole life to pursuing success 
and then got to the age where we retired and nobody wants to listen to us anymore. And for everybody that smiles and thinks, I know people like that, well, guess what? Where you're going to be one of those people that day, one day too. That looks around and thinks, how, how come nobody cares about my opinion? I, I, I think, like, there's not many of us here that work in my profession, but I, I meet plenty of former pastors that still just don't want to kind of stand at the back of the church and help. They just want everyone to listen to them still. And I realize that my great struggle one day is that I'm going to be that guy. And the question I've got to keep asking myself is, am I going to be content enough in who God's created me to be that I'm going to be willing to come and do whatever it takes to champion the next generation? But we find that in every profession. We find it in every profession. Because when we lose control of the story, if, the, if I'm the one at the center of the story, suddenly the promises don't deliver and we start to feel like we're out of control. But there is a better story. Jesus stands up one day in a, in a synagogue, his hometown of Nazareth. As obviously was the practice in their weekend gatherings, somebody got up and they read from the scriptures. Now, Jesus obviously is a significant part of what's written in our scriptures. So he's going back to the Old Testament text, the law and the prophets. They were already recorded. They were already things that people studied and understood. They knew the promises God had made. And on this particular day, Jesus stands up in the synagogue. It's his chance to stand up and to bring the, the reading. And so he grabs a scroll that's from the prophet Isaiah. If you've got a Bible and you want to flick through it later, Isaiah is one of the Old Testament books. It's, it, Isaiah was a prophet. So much of the book of Isaiah speaks to the coming Messiah, speaks to Jesus himself. But on this day in the synagogue, Isaiah grabs, uh, Jesus grabs a scroll from Isaiah and stands up and reads, and he says this, The Spirit of the Lord is on me because he's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. Hold on to that for a minute. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free and to proclaim the year of the Lord's favour. The scriptures tell us that as Jesus rolled up the scroll and handed it back, he says, today this has been fulfilled in this place. Jesus makes a very confronting and very, like as one of the statements that probably started to turn public opinion against him in the religious heavyweights, Jesus essentially says, the promise of God through the prophet Isaiah was that one day one was going to come who was going to bring good news for the poor freedom for the prisoners, recovery of sight for the blind, and declare the year of the Lord's favour. And Jesus says, here I am. I am the one that is going to do it. There's a reason why the good news of Jesus is good news to the poor. Because it's often the poor, the poor financially, the poor in spirit, the poor in health, the poor relationally, that quicker come to the point of recognising that putting themselves in the centre of the story doesn't end up going so well. It's good news for the poor because often it's the poor that discover their need for something greater quicker than the rest of us. You see, the poor discover that they can't do it on their own by putting themselves at the centre of the story. They need someone else. It's the poor that realise they don't have control over the narrative. And that the story, even if they had control over it, just never arrives at the point you hope it will. You see, I reckon the hardest person to reach with the good news of Jesus is the healthy, wealthy, physically and mentally capable middle-aged Aussie who has nothing in their life that feels like they don't have control over. Because if you're there, why do you need God? 
But Jesus says, I want to tell you, here I am. And I'm good news for the poor. But the invitation is for everyone else, for all of us to come to the point where we recognize that we are poor and desperate of someone greater than us. Because if we get to that point of recognizing that all the great dreams and ambitions that we had in this world may never come to fruition, suddenly our hearts are open to embrace something else. And Jesus says, I've got good news for those who come to that place. When you place me at the center, life makes sense. Jesus says some really confronting things. John 10, 10, Jesus says this, the thief comes only to steal and kill and destroy. But I have come that they or that you may have life and have it to the full. See, is the meaning of life success, fulfillment, freedom, or is it, would all of us say, actually, if I've got to speak to the meaning of life, I, I, they're not bad words, that I would have life and have it to the full. Well, Jesus says, I come to give you life and life in its fullest, most wholesome, most make sense way. I have come that you may have life and have it to the full. In Matthew chapter 10, he says something even more confronting. He says this. He says, whoever does not take up their cross and follow me is not worthy of me. For whoever tries, to, whoever finds their life will lose it. And whoever loses their life for my sake will find it. What, what do those words mean? Jesus just says, whoever realizes that while ever they're at the center, life will never find fullest fulfillment. You'll spend your whole life pursuing something that's going to be empty. Jesus says, but whoever gives up that life and puts me at the center and pursues me first and foremost will discover life in its truest sense. Jesus tells an incredible story. It's one that's well known to many of us. It's a story that he told out the back of some people whinging about the people that Jesus hung out with. Jesus hung out with all those that nobody else liked. Jesus hung out with those that the religious people didn't like. But one day Jesus heard them groaning and moaning about it and told them this story. He said there was a son that came to his dad and said, Dad, I want my inheritance. And for someone to ask that, and you can go and read this story. It's recorded in Luke's Gospel, chapter 15. It's titled, The Story of the Lost Son. For a son to come to his dad and ask for his inheritance, in that culture, was essentially saying, Dad, I wish you dead. He's going, actually, the only way I get my inheritance is if you're not around, but I want it early. I'm sick of being part of this family. I wish you dead. Give me your inheritance. And the father obliges. He gives the young son his inheritance. And then the Bible tells us this in verse 13. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, including the inheritance the dad had just given him, and set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. Let me paraphrase wild living for you today. The pursuit of everything we've spoken about. Success, fame, fulfillment, freedom, renown, pleasure, he, he went after all of it. He went and he squandered everything that his dad had given him in wild living. But then the Bible tells us, Jesus tells us in this story that a famine hit the land 
And the heart of the young son started to recognize that all that he'd experienced and all that he'd pursued and all that he'd dreamt of and all that he'd hoped for and all that he'd wished his own dad dead for had actually come up empty. And his heart started to yearn to go home. His heart started to yearn for something that couldn't be found in the pursuit that he'd set himself off. He started to yearn for something deeper. Some of us here today might have a deep yearning in our spirit because we pursued all the narratives, yet we still feel unfulfilled, discontent and empty. You may not be able to put words or thought to it, but I reckon inside every one of us, there is something that only God can fill. And the young son started to yearn for home. He'd actually seen how good it was. He actually saw how generous his dad was and how kind and loving and giving his dad was. And, you know, how in his father's house he got fed and he got looked after and he was included in the family. He started to yearn from home, but then his heart said, well, that's all good and well, but I've told dad that I wish he was dead. Surely dad won't have me back, but I've got an idea. Maybe if I go back home and say to my dad, dad, you owe me nothing but I'll come and I'll be a servant in your household. Because the son, the son in the story says, even the servants in my dad's household have got it better than the life that I've found myself in right now. So maybe dad will just embrace me as a servant. This is what Jesus tells and the story happened. The son starts to head for home. But while he was a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son. He threw his arms around him and he kissed him. And the son said to him, Father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and he's alive again. He was lost and he's found. And so they began to celebrate. Now, as we close today, I want to give you an invitation this morning. Some of us are here and we've been Christians. We've been Jesus followers. We've been part of the local church our entire life. Yet if we're really honest about it, we haven't put Jesus in the center of our story. We've actually told ourselves that the pursuit of all these other things other things that are going to make us content and happy and fulfilled. And so we sell ourselves for success, or we sell our life for wealth, or we sell ourselves for pleasure and fulfillment, and we've pursued everything, and yet we've got to the pinnacle of where we thought we would, or we got to the next stage, or we got to the next step, and yet still the emptiness and the yearning inside is deep and is great, and we realize we've never arrived. Some of us have pursued it through good works. And yet we constantly just look at ourselves and beat ourselves up because we realize we're not actually that good. If you're in that boat, I want to give you an invitation today to make a conscious decision to put Jesus back at the center of your life. That's going to look different for all of us. For some of us, it's, it's going to take on a practical reality. We're going to have to go home and we're going to have to get our calendars out we're going to have to rework some priorities. We have to do some stuff that actually practically puts Jesus back in the center. We have to decide that there's a whole bunch of things that are demanding our time, 
that pursuing the life of Jesus and following His purposes is the most important. And then we choose to fit everything else in around that. Many of us have been living faith for a long time where we just fit Jesus in when there's a little bit of spare time. He wants to come back to the center. And so maybe for some of us today, the challenge is, will you put Jesus back at the center? You've already come to a place of receiving his love and his grace and his forgiveness. You know that your future and your eternity is secured. So the only thing really at stake is now living a life of meaning and purpose. And while ever you pursue other things, life is not going to find the fulfillment that it can if Jesus becomes the center. There might be some others of us here today we're like the young son. We've gone off and we've squandered everything and we just have this deep emptiness inside. There's only one thing that's going to fill it for you. It's not more stuff. It's not more success. It's not more friends. It's not more Instagram followers. It's not more money. It's not a better car. It's not a better husband. It's not a better life. The only thing that can ever fill that hole is the loving embrace of Father God that doesn't just want to welcome you in as one of his servants, wants to bring you to the table as part of his family. And so if that's you this morning, as we finish, I'm going to pray a prayer in just a moment that's going to give you the chance to invite Jesus for the very first time to be the center of your life. And some of what's happened up here for you is going to move to here. Because faith isn't just about knowledge, it's about experience. It's about a deep encounter with the love and the grace of God. So I'm going to invite us all, can we just take a moment just where we are? Let me pray with you. And then if today you'd like me to lead you through that prayer, I'm going to, I'm going to ask you to do something really brave and just to, just a moment, stick your hand up to let us know that you want to choose to put your faith in Jesus for the very first time today. We're going to pray with you. We're going to celebrate that. This is the best place to do it because this place is filled with people that have made that step and who think that it's the best decision that you could ever make in your life. So what better place to make that decision than here this morning? Hey, Lord God, as we come to the end of our service today, I just want to thank you that you are the center. The whole Bible points to you as the center. You are the fulfillment of the story of Israel. You are the, the, the intent of God from the very beginning, the minute that brokenness and sin entered our story. You were the solution. And God, ever since you came in human form as the person Jesus, and you gave your life upon a cross so that we could be forgiven and know life and freedom and healing and redemption, God, you've been changing lives and you continue to change lives, not just to make life on this earth better and more fulfilling, but to give us hope that runs into eternity. Lord, I pray for all of us today that we would search our hearts and ask the question of what does it mean to put you at the center of our faith? And can I just ask us all just to keep our eyes closed for a moment? I just, I just want to give some people an opportunity for the very first time to make the decision that they're going to put their faith in Jesus. And if that's you, I'm just going to, I'm going to pray a prayer that I'm going to ask you just in the quietness of your own space to repeat after me. It's putting it in your words, just inviting Jesus to become the center of your life. And when you do that, his forgiveness becomes your story. His love will overwhelm you. His grace, his free gift of love and acceptance becomes yours. And your eternity becomes secure. You find your hope and your purpose and your freedom and your fulfillment in him. If today you're here and you've never made the decision to 
put your faith in Jesus as your Savior. Love to pray with you, but I just, can I just ask right now, while everyone else has got their eyes closed, would you just raise your hand just so I can see you and I can identify you and we can pray together. Anyone here that today just knows today is their moment to put Jesus at the center of their story. Just going to give it a moment. Anyone here today want to pray that prayer with me? stand together as we sing this last song this morning there's plenty of front there's plenty of front row today isn't there our leadership team would love to come we'd love to pray with you this morning if you just know that the challenge for you is realigning your life and putting Jesus back in the center you might have been following him a long time but you've actually been serving your own purposes more than his and today he wants to ask that you would have the courage to make him the center to make him the centerpiece, to make him the priority, to make him the default, to all your hope and trust in your future, all your desire for fulfillment and success, all your desire to know freedom and wholeness and redemption will be found only in him and not the empty pursuits of this life. As we sing this final song today, if you'd like one of our team to pray with you, can I ask you to have the courage just to move forward anywhere along the front here. One of our team will come and pray with you. If you, you see a friend or someone you know and love, or God just puts a word of encouragement on your heart, you feel free to come and pray with them this morning. But why don't we sing together, church? Jesus, you're one. If you need to respond, you do that right now. We hope you've been blessed by this message. We are a growing family and we'd love to see you at one of our Sunday services because everyone who comes through our doors is welcome. You can find out more about our community and locations at gatewaybaptist.com.au.